Hello everybody, welcome to Monday Night Live. I'm Derek Arden and today we've got uh, the author and speaker Joanna Gwaldon on. I don't know how you've pronounced that uh, Joanna but perhaps you would uh, let me know in a minute because uh, there's been several people trying to uh, pronounce your name. Joanna's book has just been published, Getting On Making Work Work. It's a very interesting book and I'd recommend it to anybody. Joanna, welcome to Monday Night Live. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, your CV says that you help bright, knowledgeable people with great technical skills and experience, improving their non-technical skills so they can progress their careers and boost their firm, firm, firm's performance. So as you can see from the gallery view, which I've just put it on, there's a lot of young people like me on the show tonight, which is great. So we're going to uh, really enjoy everything you've got to uh, teach us. Uh, first of all, tell us how we pronounce your surname and what's the origin of that. And, uh, well, and then tell us a little bit about you. Hello, Derek, and thank you very much for having me on. Um, well, your pronunciation was one I'd never heard before, that has to be said. Um, well, it's a bit of an interesting one, the surname. It's my married name, and um, really it should be said Gaudoin, but my husband and his family have never said it properly. Um, and what the comedy part of this is, is I've got a um, management French degree and used to speak fluent French, a bit rusty now. And so when I got married and changed my name and people saw it on Facebook, they thought I'd married some suave Frenchman and... Um, my husband's lovely, but he's far from being French. So um, it, it's always quite interesting uh, because my French is long gone now. But the only time I say it properly is uh, if I'm booking a French restaurant. But it does feel a bit wrong. Go and say it for us properly then. Well, Godoin is how we say it, but Gaudoin should be properly. OK, well, I did Google it last <laughs> night and you come from a family of aristocratic um, oh. French people. That's what it told me. And really, uh, yeah, yeah. And Damien, uh, who's on the call, has written a fantastic book about um, Josephine Baker, who was an English spy in the Second World War who lived in a oh. castle. So, um, um, Godfrey and I wow. visit that castle in the summer. That's... We've been talking about it. So, we'll, uh, we'll see if your family had something to do with that. Well, I think Antoine Gaudoin went to. Um... India 200 years ago because my father-in-law he passed away sadly last year but he was he grew up Anglo-Indian part Dutch part French and came here in the 60s oh, yeah. um, but that's where the origin of the name my husband's done a little bit of research into it. okay so um, before you uh, became an author and a writer uh, you spent 10 years in uh, marketing and consultancy what did you learn mm. and who did you work for well, I learned a lot about toilet roll tampons and nappies working for Kimberly Clark. So that was glamorous. And um, the trip to the nappy factory was particularly interesting. So, uh, yeah, I spent three years doing that in the UK and French markets and then candidly didn't want to get stuck in marketing my whole life. And also there was uh, a lot more fun to be had in London, um, work in a broader area. So I moved into consultancy in London, marketing effectiveness. Um, that's where I met my now husband and he still works in that area so I was doing a lot of work getting to understand brands and their strategies making sure the insights we gave back for the data were valuable for their strategy going forward um, did a few roles like that I had a spell in commercial due diligence which I absolutely hated um, I have to say um, task number one on day one was to uh, market size the global market for mechanical seals didn't even know what one of those was goes in a pump Apparently. Um, didn't really work for me. Put on two stone eating cake. 
every afternoon to get me through the day. Um, so did a range of roles, performance consultancy roles. I had to hide my joy when they um, made me redundant in the last recession in 2009. Gave me eight grand to leave. That was uh, very welcome. Eight grand. You you should have talked to me. We could have probably seen if we could have done something. I know. Better. Yeah, I can negotiate a bit better. I haven't been there that long though. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, well done on that. Commercial due diligence. That sounds very city jargonish to me. And, uh, yeah, it's essentially mergers and acquisitions, helping private equity um, assess whether they should buy a business. And I hated it at the time. It was too researchy, not enough client contact. But actually, it's paid off the knowledge of that market, because now a lot of the people I work with, corporate finance, are the people in that I understand their world. So it, it has, you know, I always say to people, don't regret stuff. It's going to play a role at some point later in your life, in all likelihood. And indeed, it has. So there we go. Not the seals bit. Okay. In um in um private equity, we you work in twenty four seven because a lot of the people I know that work in private equity uh, get burnt out very quickly. Not really, because we were a consultancy doing this research for them. So essentially, making sure the companies they were looking to buy had a market, they had a decent client list, that they were going to be a viable business. So not really. And I was I suppose relatively junior at that point. So no, I I out of work as quickly as I could each day because I hated it. Quite right. So well, well done, well done. So uh, okay, let's um, let's turn to your book and let's turn to uh, personal development because uh, a lot of people here and watching this are into personal development and helping people grow. Was it a passion mm. or was it something you just fell into? Um, no, I didn't. If you'd asked me twelve years ago in autumn, it'll be since I set up my business. If you'd asked me even twelve years ago what we'd be doing so I genuinely had no idea and I was really unhappy in these roles and my then boyfriend now husband said to me well you keep going back to recruiters you end up in a similar role you need to do something different how about going to a career transition coach um so that is what I did as a long story to that um and quit my corporate job a couple of months later I think my family and friends thought I'd gone a bit crazy but that's what I did age 31 um so did that, did a bit of contracting, navel gazing, did some work for a Christian charity one day a week. And that coach was pivotal in helping me work out what to do. Um, and really what came from that process was um, that I realised I loved helping people develop and grow, supporting that growth, moving forward. Felt there was more to work than just doing your job. It was how you did that job at the people you interacted with. Um, and then the other thing that came out of it that's so true for what I do now, and I'm really fortunate that every day is different for me. I don't have the same day. And although I have the same breakfast every day, uh, boringly, what I hated was going to the same office and sitting at the same desk every day. Now, that has changed for most people with the pandemic, you know, homes and days, but it, it hadn't then 12 years ago. So now every day is different. You know, I'm on different calls every day or I'm in London presenting, running a workshop, going to speak at a conference. And that's really great for me and energizing for me. So um, that came out of that process as well. So I went and retrained in image and impact, body language skills and other related things in um, autumn 2011. Is that right? Yes, that's right. My maths is correct. And then set up my business later that year. And it's, it's evolved a lot in that time, but I'm really fortunate because I work with really bright people helping them to have that aha moment and it sounds like I'm preaching to the converted here in terms of uh, you know professional development stuff but you probably many of you know how important those other skills are to lawyers accountants and bankers because 
they just can't navigate the working world so well without them. And ultimately, they won't progress because of the expectations of more senior people. Sure, we do. And a lot of us uh, do work with those professionals. And in fact, we've got Will Kintich on, who, uh, who I'm sure will come in later, who uh, talks about networking skills. And most of his clients are solicitors and accountants. And uh, I'm not yeah. sure they always get it. They need to will back again no. to actually get it. But, no, I think Will and I cross over a lot. I think Will's done some work for one of my clients, actually. Oh, have a, Will's have done a, chat a, work, with him. a lot of work for a lot of clients, I can tell, yeah. tell you that. So um, let's turn to your book, because I was fascinated by it. And you can see how many post-its oh, that I... Do you like to see that? It's just what I wanted when I wrote the book, people to take uh, action and look at stuff. I'm going to start the back because we haven't had anyone on Monday Night Live talking about office politics. And I think everyone groans when uh, office politics are mentioned mm. uh, because most people on here have worked in a big company. And perhaps the reason they work for themselves now is because they hated office politics or they were mm. no good at it. And you're a licensed practitioner of the Academy for Political Intelligence. Is that yes. Is that politics or is that uh, is that <laughs> no. Rishi Sunak stuff? Oh, no, it's definitely not Rishi Sunak. No, it's, it's people like us, really, professional development people that did a lot of work over many years to bring together this research with a lot of involvement from somewhere called the Roffey Institute, um, which some of you probably know in terms of research and it's how a business people work school. together. It's a business school, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah so... Um, you know, some guys from there um, pulled this together and I, I trained in that in, I think, 2017 now. Um, and I trained in it after seeing I was part of a big global program. Uh, we were running for a pharmaceutical company and one of the other uh, experts like me on there was running these sessions. And I thought it was so powerful. That's why I then worked with him to be licensed in this work, because office politics is everywhere. It's about how positive or negative it is. And um, people always think, oh, it's not me. I'm not political. It's everyone else. But actually, everybody is because our behaviours make sense to us. They don't make sense to other people. And I often um, give the example, if you walk up to the machine at work and you see two of your colleagues talking, man and a woman, for the sake of argument, and as you approach, they stop talking. And I ask the question in a workshop, well, why do they stop talking? And um, I get various answers. So, you know, the obvious things are them talking about me, something confidential. I usually get they're having an affair. It's a favourite. If I'd have planned really? for every time I'd heard that one. Yeah. Um, but very rarely, I mean, sometimes people come up with, well, they just finished talking or they were being polite. Uh, they stopped to include me. And, and of course, in that moment when that's happening to you, you're not thinking of all those five possible reasons. You're thinking of the one that is determined by your situation. So that might be how you feel on that day, whether you've had um, a challenging conversation with one of those people that morning, you're not thinking of all the other possibilities. So it really shows us that our interpretation of events, it might be true, but it also might not be true. It's, it's based on what we're thinking. So the whole area of politics is thinking about what what do we see? Is it what's actually happening or what we choose to see? And then thinking about how our behaviours at work can be interpreted by others, um, depending on the, the context. And it's really powerful work. I get great results on it, both in groups. So I had um, a business services team so uh, from a large American law firm, so the heads of IT, um, HR, finance, etc., and they brought me in because they said, oh, can you come in and sort the partners out, the warring partners? I was like, well, do they want to be sorted out? Mm, well, not sure about that. 
of course that would have been difficult to do but what I did is I went in and ran a, a day with the, those heads of business services to help them deal with those partners more effectively and and that went down really well and bring that work into working with a lot of individuals as well so there's a diagnostic you can do um there, yeah diagnostics for everything these days and psychometrics but it's the only one I actually run with clients and there are 10 different profiles that helps you to understand how you could be being perceived so no profile is perfect they've all got their downsides but they essentially look at how politically intelligent you are and whether you consider just your own goals or the organizational goals as well so it's really powerful stuff for people and I guess that depends on how the uh, how the firm's incentivized. Of course, I'm thinking about Canary Wharf and investment banks now, where everybody's uh, bonus is predicated on what they do, and people do tread on lots of other people's turfs. Have you had yeah, any? They're... Have you had any fiery situations or punch ups? Uh, you know what I mean. No punch ups. But what was interesting about the business services one I ran is they I got them into pairs to work on on things. And, and actually, they were an uneven number. So one of them, poor thing, had to work with me. And one of them made a beeline for me. And he said, I want to work with you because a lot of the issues I've got are with people in this room. Mm. Um, so that was quite interesting. But what what is interesting, I read a couple of weeks ago is the Solicitors Regulation Authority is talking about bringing in i don't know how they're going to do this and whether it'll happen but bringing in fines for law firms that have a toxic culture oh. and toxic yeah really interesting i don't know how this is going to happen um but essentially firms that do treat people badly where transparency isn't encouraged people are encouraged to cover things up which of course creates massive negative politics because no one's prepared to be upfront about what they've done wrong or be open about sharing their knowledge you get low productivity, poor decision making. Um, so it'd be really interesting to see if that actually happens. I don't know how that would happen. Um, but, you know, a lot of negative impact. I mean, the negative office politics is one of the biggest causes of um, UK workplace absence and stress. Because people ultimately, when they're suffering that at work on an individual level, they don't want to go to work. They get into really negative cycles um, and they, it causes tons of issues. So. It's one of my favourite areas to work with on people because it's quite eye-opening and it can have an enormous impact. Be a great thing to do some research into what's that cost in the UK economy. Massive, yeah. Did your um, academy yeah. journey work on that? I'm wondering if they didn't, you should suggest it to them. Yeah, well, what's quite interesting, you'll laugh at this, is that um, one of the people from the academy has now split off and set up his own <laughs> They've obviously had some politics there and he's now starting over and I'm involved in some beta testing on some new research in this area and new diagnostics. So he's got me involved in that um, just to have a look at that. And um, so I'm sure there will be some research knowing him. I'm sure there will be some research like that to support this work and selling it in and how important it is, particularly in sectors where you get a lot of negative politics. And it may surprise you. I often ask the question in which sector do you think there's most negative office politics, private, public, or charitable? Not shall we get? It. Shall we get? Um, shall we get the audience to put their thoughts into the chat box? That will yeah, be yeah. Go on then. Which idea. of those is it? Is Which... it not for profit, private, or public? Lawyers or accountants or bankers? I was thinking as well. Yeah, it's uh, all of the above. Well, yeah, that's true. All of the above. 
it's coming in uh, the public sector. There's more days lost, isn't there, in the public sector, almost twice as much days lost in the public sector as there is in the uh, private sector, I think. And the NHS is one of the worst ones. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's Will, Tim and Damien are on the money there because it's in all sectors for sure. But where we see it from myself and the other practitioners, most is not for profit. And you could debate why this is. Um, I think a lot of it is people feel like, oh, I'm maybe there's a lot of volunteering because so I'm giving my time. So, you know, therefore I can be a bit more of this and that. Um, there's a big differential in not-for-profit between the CEO of, of charity that perhaps earns an awful lot of money and a lot of people in charities that don't. So you've got this big disparity. So mm. it's really, really interesting to see. Yeah. Public is next and private is the least. I'm surprised at that, but thinking about it, you see these great big uh, six-figure salaries for CEOs of um, of charities or people that call themselves charities, and then you see people working for nothing or working yeah. for very small amounts. Yeah, that's. Uh, mm. I think there's some work for you to do there, Joanna. You can, um, yeah. If you're watching this, don't forget to hire Joanna to uh, sort some of your office politics <laughs> out i'd like to know from the states is office politics the same tim maybe you could put something in the chat box is office politics carl as uh, fierce as you perceive it might be from what joanna's been saying moving on while you're doing that you talk about the power of the phone call we've talked about that quite a lot on this uh, uh, and some of us believe that the phone should not be called a phone anymore it should be called some sort of smart computer because it's very rarely used to make phone calls and thank you for phoning me for the rehearsal this morning it's nice to get a call from somebody what do you what do you what's your take on phone calls yeah i think they're really valuable because what's happened now particularly since the pandemic is we've got a polarization so we've got people very dependent on email which email has its purpose absolutely and we've got people very much using video calls zoom teams all that stuff and the phone gets a bit forgotten, but I think it's actually really valuable. What's interesting is the youngest generation in the workplace, I've forgotten what they call them. I always get muddled up between X, Z, whatever. But that generation, they are not used to using the phone. It's just they're used to chat and other things. And it's quite interesting. In a law firm I do some work with, they had a day where the partners taught the youngest generation how to use the phone effectively and when it was most useful. And the youngest generation taught the partners about social media. So it was a good skill swap. But I think the phone's good, particularly when you know somebody well, so you don't need to see them on a video call. You can call them just spontaneously and they've got the choice not to answer it because most of the time on our mobiles, we can see who it is anyway. And if we're busy, we can just not answer it. And it's just less full on than a video call. It, it can be less intentional. But you, you, the thing is, you can focus on what people are saying. You're not bothering about whether the technology is holding up or you know, what someone's looking like. So if you don't particularly need to read body language, and I know, Derek, you say a lot in negotiation, your your um, newsletter today about if you can then see someone in person, even better. Um, there's nothing beats that. But I do think the phone also rather than email, because you can get nuances from people and their voice that you don't get on email. And people are more willing to give something away about what's really going on in a phone call than they will in an email putting it in writing. So I think it's much underutilized at this point. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. And I'm, I, I, I tell my clients to ring up as soon as they've got a dodgy email or a toxic email or whatever we want to call it on an aggressive email about a negotiation, pick up the phone mm. and call them. The surprise on people's faces yeah. when, sorry, I can't see their face, can you? But you can, you can tell, I mean, you talk about, mm. body, you can tell 
what they're thinking and almost what their body language is like when you listen mm. to their mm. to their voice tonality absolutely yeah and you can discern more i mean i've got clients and prospective clients that i will sometimes just pick up the phone like you know for i know they'll be okay with that and they won't answer if they don't want to and others i'll email instead but working out what's right for the type of relationship that you've got with the person i'm a bit sh- i'm a bit shocked that people wouldn't think it's all right to be called because they're in control of answering the phone. I don't get that, but maybe that's um, mm. it's Generation Z and millennials are the generations you were talking about. Millennials, they don't even know. Uh, they only think it's for Facebook. No, Facebook's not for millennials, is it? Instagram is now or or Snapchat or something else. Let's turn to meetings. We had John Baker on who uh, surprised us all a few uh, few months ago about meetings we all thought we knew how to run meetings but you came up with some new issues what's your take on meetings Joanna oh what an awful lot of time wasted I mean it it was an amazing I went to speak up at the council in North London a couple of weeks ago um and I I'm doing these road shows for my book and I essentially I'm giving a, a choice of three titles and they picked effective meetings and presentations and the number of questions I got was phenomenal and I went home with an empty book bag so that's coffee day I didn't have to carry them home um loads of questions around that um it's just during the pandemic I think people just shoved even more meetings in and meeting bloat happened that's what I'm calling it so too many meetings not making sure we have the right people on the meetings so nobody should be going to a meeting unless they're clear why they're going and what their role is and what the desired outcome of the meeting is, because otherwise you just got a load of people sat there, particularly on video meetings, checking their emails and not engaging anyway. So it's a complete waste of time. Um, people just having their days filled because suddenly they don't need to get between time between meetings, between rooms in an office, because of course they could just sit on Zoom all day. They don't need to make lunch, make a coffee, go to the bathroom or anything else. They can just go back to back. So I think a lot of discipline has been lost with meetings and actually it's not all down to people that run meetings that have this responsibility as a participant in meetings and really encouraging people to find out why you're going what is expected of you there what do you need to prepare and if there's no real role for you there why on earth are you wasting an hour of your time because collectively an hour say you've got six people in a meeting well that's that's part of a day's work six people for an hour Absolutely. I was just having a quick look to see who got their camera off in this meeting. And there's only three people. And they've All three of them have apologised to me for, for doing it, which is uh, really interesting. Second point, the Brighton manager on Saturday complained to the referee that he was no good, but, it, he, but the chief referee uh, for the Football League had wasted two hours of his time in a meeting when he should have been working with his players. So he got a red card for that. And turning to page 157 of your book, I hope I'm not catching you out here. You say, and I quote, on average, employees spend almost 23 days in meetings with 13 of these days being unproductive, according to a recent survey of European workers conducted by Crown Plaza Hotel. I was amazed by those statistics. And then Harvard Mm. Research in 2017 71% of 182 senior managers said meetings were generally unproductive and inefficient. And that was Harvard. So it sounds like the other side of the pond's as bad as as we are. Actually, it's probably the Mm. same all around the world. What a waste. Yeah, it is a terrible waste. And I, yeah, I, I also, this links a little bit to networking and connections and stuff, but 
I, I think it's really important that you know why you're meeting someone. And sometimes I have someone connect me to another person on email. I'm sure they're trying to do a nice thing. They've got somewhere in their mind that these two can be useful to each other. But that's not great because like, you sometimes end up in a meeting with someone. You have no idea why. So I certainly now have a practice of if I think some two people can be useful to one another, I check out with both of them first. Are they happy to be introduced and explain a bit to each of them why I'm doing that? Um, and if I'm at a networking event and I say to somebody, oh, I think this person could help you or they'd be a good client for you, I need to check with them first whether that's OK, because yeah, I've ended up in really random meetings before that I have absolutely no idea if I'm talking to this person and, and giving up half an hour of my day, so, which I'm happy to do if it's valuable to us both and, and we know what we're aiming at. Yeah, but often the other person doesn't know why we're there, why they're there, no. either. and that's you have one of those ridiculous con conversations. Mm. Um, so let's turn to networking. Um, let's um, have your take on networking. You, I'll give you two minutes on that as we got Will on. I'm hoping you're going to come up with some new ideas he hasn't thought of. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. He's uh, seen as a big expert, I know. Um, the thing about networking is, and, and hopefully will agree with me, people think it's not necessary unless they're in business development. And that's just absolutely not the case. There's so many reasons to network. So learning about your clients, learning about the sector, learning what the competition's doing, getting to know people for your career. I mean, there's a friend of mine, she shall remain nameless, but um, she worked for a lot of big banks when we left university. She had big jobs, essentially creating investment products um, and then dealing with compliance to get them pushed through. And she just moved roles all the time because bosses moved and took her with them six months later, which is brilliant. Shows she was really good at her job and she stayed in touch with that one person. But when eventually the politics got her, she'd been promised the next step up and that all went wrong. And, uh, you know, we had a friendly chat and she said, well, what am I going to do? And I said, well, let's look at your network. And when she never built it. So she'd never stayed in touch with people. She'd never bothered going to any internal events at all these big financial institutions never connecting with people on LinkedIn and she had to start from scratch you know to get a new role and she said to me oh I just wish I'd I'd known this and I've never and we'll never do that again and so it's really valuable for your career and I, I'm not sure I believe this stat but they do say that 80 percent of the job market is hidden um, and you know roles get created for people through their network and I do have a good example of that so clients of mine um he used to work in business development, a law firm. And, uh, you know, I was talking to him about doing some work with them. And then uh, he wanted to leave. There was a merger. It was all going not so great there. And he just got chatting to someone in his network. He wasn't a client, just someone in his network. And they said, oh, we really need someone with your skills in our organisation. took a few months, but they created a job for him. And, um, you know, it's it's worked out really, really well because, and that would never have come about if he didn't have a good network and was proactive about staying in touch with people. So, you can't, it's not my phrase, I can't remember whose phrase it is, but you can't create a network when you need one. So, you need to get started early. And quite frankly, we'll probably say this as well the younger you are, the easier it is to learn new things. I'm not saying you can't, the older you get, but if you get into the practice of going to events, Having awkward conversations, you know, very few people go, oh, yippee, I'm going to a room full of people I don't know, even me, and I run workshops on the stuff and and big extrovert and like it. You do have a moment of, right, here we go. But ultimately, everyone's there to meet people. Everyone feels a bit awkward. And it's just about being human would be my big tip. Um, it's not the minute you get into the what do you do conversation, 
when I run workshops, I say that is banned. You're never again to go and say, hello, I'm Joanna. What do you do? Uh, that's complete conversation killer, um, which I'm sure spot you've heard and, from uh, well before. Spot on. And after the recording, we'll talk to Will. I agree with you that 80% of things is hidden, a bit like the iceberg. I think uh, 80% of um, jobs and and even estate agents, I'm talking to estate agents because uh, my daughter wants to move and uh, the, the pr houses come on the market without getting advertised on. Uh, yeah. Um, so all uh, these uh, things yeah. go on through networking and building rapport and, and uh, knowing people. So uh, absolutely. And getting out there, you know, I, actually, we wouldn't have the house that we have now if I hadn't. I went in person to all the estate agents the day we'd sold ours. And it was only the other agent, the more senior one in the office, heard me talking to the junior and said, oh, well, actually, this is coming on the market. Not ready yet. And that's the house we've ended up with. So it, uh, it's similar with networking. You just got to be out there. And it, it's a bit like, I believe, I've never done it, but online dating, it's a numbers game. Yeah, yeah it is absolutely a numbers game. I've also heard that 98% of people um, don't like networking, don't like going into a room and feel a bit, um, bit nervous. And I get that. It's always yeah. the same when you don't know anybody. It... Yeah, I, I get it too. I mean, I we're temporarily not living in our house because we um, are having a renovation and my parents are kindly having us to stay. And I've joined my mum's gym and I don't know anybody there. And it is a bit weird. I walk into a class. I don't know anyone. And that I'm thinking, oh, but this is how people feel in a work context. But I don't feel it so much in a work context, which is interesting. Yeah, we were talking about walking into a pub in a different town. You know, there's a stranger in town, as my friend Texas yeah. Tim would say. Um, let's just move on to the last uh, last thing I wanted to ask you. And it's a red hot topic at the moment. It's about trust. I mean, mm -hmm. people trust people less now than they've ever done. I think I read that somewhere. And uh, mm -hmm. there seems to be more high level fraud and dishonesty going on in, in the um, in the media etc what's your take yeah I think there's a, a lot of issues with trust and it it takes time to build it can be easily wrecked um also the danger that you make a wrong decision based on trust too quickly I've done that recently myself with something some of the uh, workmen we've got on our house um I didn't trust someone very much because of something they'd done and they'd made a recommendation I didn't follow their recommendation because I didn't trust them turned out probably not to be the right decision but trust is pivotal and the, the trust um I always talk about it as being two-sided so personal trust is you know I leave my bag here and you're not going to walk off with it and and usually that comes if you like somebody that person trust but professional trust is believing someone's really an expert in what they do so if I think about all the people I know whether that's people from school university neighbors friends work people you know I know thousands and thousands of people I like a smaller subset of that and I professionally trust even fewer. And it and the core question is, you know, would you recommend this person to your best client is quite the key question for getting to that. And um, people often find trust is hard to define. It's a bit nebulous, you know, what really builds trust. And I'm sure many of you have heard about it, but there's a great trust equation in from the Trusted Advisor book, um, which is worth looking at. And I find that professional financial services people really like it because it breaks trust down because it says that trust is built from credibility, reliability and intimacy. So credibility being, you know, do, knowing your stuff. And that doesn't mean you should never say you don't know. There's actually a lot of power in saying you don't know because it means when you do know, that's more credible. And then the reliability, continually doing what you said you'd do, being consistent, 
um, not being, uh, one day someone doesn't know what to make of you, you know, you're inconsistent in how you respond to people. And then the intimacy is really the being human piece, building connection with people. But all of that is undermined by self-orientation. So, of course, we all need goals. We're doing things for a reason. But if it just comes across to the other person, it's just about us. And probably the prime example I give of that is actually at networking. We've all been there and had what I call the business card stab. You know, when they, someone barely says hello and they shove a business card in your hand. And, and are you ever going to call that person? No, you're not. Absolutely no way. You're just not going to do that because and that to me is self-orientation because all they're interested in is getting their card in their hand. So trust is a really important one to build and it is easily broken as well, sadly. So it's a continual job to be building trust with people. Mm. We've got Eva Finari coming on next month who uh, talks about gut feel and some of the re recent research into uh, serotonin in the gut and how you feel about uh, yeah about the gut so that's uh, i get a feeling about people when i meet them as soon as i meet them as soon as i handshake with them i think most people do but a lot of people ignore it because the people are yeah. talking about me what's your view on that before we close yeah i think there's a lot to be said for gut feel you know we do have to be careful with that because it can be wrong but i do think you have to trust that there's a lot of interesting work in that area you know how our guts related to our brain um, and all that processing all the, all the work that the zoe studies are doing at the moment there's quite a good podcast um, like that and a lot of it is around nutrition and health but there's a lot in that other area as well about how our brain processes these things so that's that's worth tapping into the serotonin as you said mm, so. brilliant joanna well we're almost out of time one last tip for people live on the uh, monday night live and also for people watching this on youtube or listening to it on the uh, live and uncut podcast well, really, section one of my book is it all starts with you. And it really does. We like to think all our problems at work, our problems with other people, they're about other people. But unless we know what our impact on other people is and our role in a situation, you know, what role have we played until we build that self-awareness, a key part of emotional intelligence, as many of you will know, we can't possibly think about improving our relationships and working on all these other very important skills that we need to to navigate working life and to progress careers fantastic joanna gowden have i said it right this time no I no but that's all right that's another way don't worry that's way number four that's fine yeah you're very welcome thank, thank you for having me on and and well done three years of monday night live and a ton of interviews so well done on that Derek. thank you and if anyone wants to get hold of joanna all you do is google her uh, and uh, up she will come and the book's on Amazon it was delivered the next day when I ordered it thanks for joining us I really appreciate that and I hope you'll come and, and join us soon at another time thank you lovely thank you